What's your name? Jim Watson. What's your occupation? Uh, I used to be a sportscaster before all this happened. How many sports have you performed play-by-play duties? 39. 39? 39. I thought it was in the 20s. 39, and that doesn't even count uh, women's and men's basketball as two events. It counts as one. 39. You got to do Olympic sports. How many different sports have you done in the Olympics? Five Olympics, six sports. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, we continue my nostalgic tour of my friends and colleagues from Southern California. Jim Watson is a five-time Emmy Award winner and arguably the most versatile sportscaster in America. We will learn about Waddy's <laughs> unusual path and his versatility. And if this podcast is anything like most of the times that we hang out, He'll just go on a bunch of long rants and lecture me endlessly. But don't worry, it's always fun. Jim Watson is next on Life Around the Seams. Oh, boy. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. And uh, I'm going to just quit. This will take forever, but he's an anchor. He's a host. He's a sideline reporter. He does play-by-play. He's worked for NBC and Universal Sports, Fox Sports, Pac-12 Networks, The Mountain, USA, MSNBC, CNBC, Time Warner, ESPN3. I'm already exhausted. You work for everyone. Can't keep a job. They just keep moving <laughs> me around. That's the problem. Uh, no, it's because you worked there a while, and they're like, yeah, he's not real good. And they just pass you on to the next guy. It all comes down to money. You know how TV is. Okay, I want to start with what is an inside joke between us and our mutual friends, but it sets the tone for how you got into this. How many colleges did you attend? <laughs> well, I went, I went to five schools in all, and it sounds ridiculous, but I, w- I was in junior college for a long time. I actually started going to college while I was still in high school. I went to college in what most people call the 80s. Uh, I graduated high school in 80 and I graduated college in 89. So I went to junior college for a bunch of years. I wanted to be a sportscaster. I thought, you don't need to go to college to be a sportscaster. Nine years later, uh, I proved myself right. College has never helped me. All it did is get me an internship, which was practical experience and the connections. But yeah, three junior colleges uh, in two different states and then uh, University of Hawaii for a couple of years. And then I came back and and got my sheepskin from USC, which was brilliant, Josh, because I, I got a degree from USC and I only paid them for 20 months. There were kids that were there five and six years and I have the same degree they got. What were some of the jobs that you held? I don't, I don't know if they were occupations, but the jobs or the jobs you thought you might hold during this nine year run of college. I was a, I was a bartender and I always tell people that if every job paid the same, I would be a bartender today. You, you slept till noon, 
You didn't go to work till six or seven at night. You were at a party every night. People gave you cash, which you could or could not declare on your taxes. Uh, people were giving you tickets. You're getting paid to talk to girls and you ate for free in the restaurant. I mean, what, what better gig is there? So why'd you stop? Because I blew it and graduated college and got a real job in broadcasting. And it's funny, it took me five years in broadcasting to make as much money as I was making as a bartender and I was working more hours. What did you do for the Johnny Carson show? I was a page. I was one of those famous NBC pages, uh, blue sport coat, white shirt, red tie. So I was, I was working a bar in Beverly Hills uh, called the Beverly Hills Roadhouse Italian Grill and Saloon, which is now a Chinese restaurant. And it was right off uh, Wilshire and Rodeo. It was awesome. And uh, one, one day a, a girl comes in and sits at the bar and we start talking and she says, hey, I, I work at NBC. I'm a page. You should do that. You'd be great at it. I said, yeah, okay. Who do I talk to? She said, I'll set it up for you. Called me the next day. I went up, got my interview. Paid me twelve fifty an hour. So in the daytime at NBC, you gave tours to tourists. You took them on the set of classic concentration and, and uh, you know, the, the soap operas. I don't even know which ones they were doing in those days. All famous soap operas you've heard of. And then at night, you would work on The Tonight Show. And what a page does is you get assigned either to handle crowd or if you've been there a while, then you work with a celebrity. So you get assigned to a celebrity. Somebody comes in, you meet them at their car, make sure that, uh, uh, you know, makeup is ready for them and promotions if they have to do something, if they need tickets set up, uh, just, you know, anything that the celebrity needs, you're their liaison on the lot. And it was, it was awesome because I got to hang around some really big name celebrities and you saw how they handled it. And the old timers on the show would tell me, you can always tell the insecurity of a celebrity by the size of their entourage. And I'll just leave you this way. Whitney Houston had 50 people with her. Dolly Parton had two. Dolly Parton, best celebrity I ever met. Okay, second best celebrity that you ever met, if Dolly's the first. Uh, you know, it's funny. I was backstage one night, and there were these two guys that were on the show. One was a comedian, never heard of him, and he brought his buddy. And, uh, and the comedian was standing there talking to the pages because he's nervous before he goes on. He's a pretty young guy, so he's talking to us, trying to burn some energy and, and distract himself. And he had this friend with him, and, uh, and the friend was a little slow. And we thought, well, that's pretty cool. He's hanging out with a guy who's maybe got some uh, developmental disabilities. He's kind of goofy and weird. And, you know, he's not really answering questions or looking you in the eye. And we're like, well, that's cool. He's, I mean, they're nice guys. And we're talking to him. So a few minutes later, the curtain opens and David Spade goes out on the stage to do his stand-up. And he finishes and he comes back. And then he says, hey, me and my buddy are going to go across the street. There was a famous bar across the street from uh, the Tonight Show. Do you guys want to meet us for a drink? And I said, yeah, sure. You bet. So went across the street afterwards, I sit down and I turned to his friend, the one I thought was a little slow. And I said, hi, I'm Jim. And he goes, hi, I'm Adam Sandler. So joke's on me. What year was this? Approximately. Could have been, uh, have been well, uh, Carson and Johnny Carson and I uh, both left the Tonight Show the same year. He got all the headlines. So that was 1990, 91. Two? Yeah. Somewhere okay. in there. So it'd been 1990, 91, somewhere. So this is before Spade and Sandler got on Saturday Night Live. Nobody had ever heard of them. They were just, they were just punks. There was another guy there, and I can't remember who it was. Some of the guys I worked with at NBC told me it was Charlie Sheen. They were kids. These guys were like late teens, early 20s maybe. I don't know. You'd have to Google their ages. But, you know, I was older than them. And I was like, you know, for Spade, I'm like, hey, man, you're going to do great. Don't worry about it. This is it. You know, he had the long hair and 
I mean, he walked out, he nailed it. And he'd already been doing some stand-up in LA, but he wasn't a name. Nobody knew who he was. You know, and the Tonight Show used to discover comedians. That was their thing. You know, nowadays, TV, you got to be pretty well established to make it onto network television. Those days, you know, Carson, he liked that. He liked to find, he sent his talent people out. Comedy clubs weren't as prevalent in those days. He'd send somebody out to, you know, to cherry pick some talent and, and expose them on the Tonight Show. I remember when, you know, Seinfeld came on and Gary Shandling and all these old school guys. And, you know, they were big names by then, but nobody had ever heard of Spade. Man, I'd planned on talking with you about sportcasting, but now I want to talk to you about the Johnny Carson and the Tonight Show. Like, this is fabulous. Gosh, you know what's funny? So I've interviewed in my life, I don't know, let's just pick a number, 25 jobs. And every single job I go, go for, the guy would be looking at my resume or the woman would be looking at my resume. And they're like, yeah, okay, you went to SC and did a little practice. You worked on the Tonight Show? And it, that's the thing we end up talking about. And then after like this, after like 10 minutes, they're like, Oh, so anyway, tell me what sports have you done? Okay, you start on Monday. I, it, always, it always gives me the gig. And I, I, I tell people all the time to put funny things on their resume that are, that are real because it stimulates conversation, brings out your personality, and it makes you multidimensional. Because the last thing the world needs is a little middle-aged white guy in a blue sport coat hacking cliches out you know, at, a, at a game. I mean, how many of those are there? Okay, so... Johnny Carson's ability to get subjects comfortable, to get them talking, to get great things out of them. That's something that you've ended up doing as a reporter. What did you learn from Johnny about the power of the camera and getting the best out of, out of interviews? Pre-interviews are great. That's what Carson used to do. And he had people pre-interview. And it's so funny. Carson's guy would pre-interview the celebrities guy. Uh, but it, instead of just the celebrity, yeah, they'd hit the celebrities too, but you get more stuff and, and you'd say, Hey, what is, what is so-and-so, you know, uh, like remember night court, remember that mm-hmm. show night court, Harry yeah. Anderson was the judge on night court. I remember Harry Anderson came on the show one time and all Carson talked to him about was being a magician. And Harry Anderson had come to LA to work as a magician at the magic castle and then got into acting because he couldn't make enough money as a magician. They talked the whole time. Carson had been a magician when he first started. So that, that was their little thing. And they did the whole interview that way. And it was great. They broke out some cards and did some tricks. And Carson knew he was going to do it. But Harry Anderson didn't know. But it just turned out to be this organic thing. And it was natural. And, and, and then that leads me into the second thing. I always tell people when they're, they're new, especially in television, where you see faces, right? You got to be yourself. You got to speak in your own voice. Don't do a, an affected voice. Don't try to be too formal. Just talk the way you are. I always think the most successful people, David Letterman to me, has been the greatest guy on television. And it's because he made fun of himself, right? He was goofy all the time. He made fun of the network, network time killers, the monkey cam, all this ridiculous stuff. You know, take, take the subject seriously, but not yourself. And I, and I tell people that in, in, even in sports casting, our little toy shop, I say to people, you know, be respectful of the player not the play. Like you can make fun of, of someone's mistake. Don't make fun of them as a person. And you know this because you do, you call college sports too. These kids got to go to school on Monday. Their parents are watching at home. If you're calling LeBron or Tiger, you can rip them all you want. These are grown men. These are public figures. But you're talking about calling college athletes. You know, most of these kids are never going to get paid to do, um, you know, play their sport. So, you know, you want to be respectful of them. Don't make it hard for them to leave their apartment on Monday morning. One memory that I have of you that really stood out in my mind, I want Uh-oh. to share with the audience and then get your, uh, get your reflections on this. 
uh, I talked about this with Patrick O'Neill about how, okay, TV got first pick for who, who's going to be the post-game interview. It's called a walk-off. Randy would get second pick. And so most of the time, like, okay, whoever TV's going to get, I'll get the second person. But every once in a while, someone would have such a huge game that you're like, all right, TV will get him first and I'll get him afterwards. So there was a Sunday afternoon game and Justin Sellers had recently been called up and Sellers hit a home run or he did something where you got him for the interview. And so I'm waiting for you to finish with the interview. And I remember like Justin was just like blown away at just about his yeah. day. And he kept looking over at his, it was either his wife or his girlfriend and their kid. And then at some point you were just, yeah. you just waved him over. You just said, Hey, just come in the shot. And I remember just thinking, I would have been so focused, at least at that point in my career, on, no, I have to do the interview. I have to be straightforward. I have to be a pro's pro. And then here you are like, no, come over here, join. And it just became this great TV moment of Justin and his family all celebrating this day together. Well, look, you and I both know that you're way more professional than I've ever been. And it just goes back to not, you know, it is amazing to me how many guys, especially sportscasters, think it's all about them. And we, we all learned this in J school. It's not about you. It's about them. So the more you can bounce the light towards them, right? Uh, you know, there's an old saying that, that the moon is only the reflected light of the sun. So I always tell guys, you're the moon, right? We can see you, but it's not about you, right? So I like those organic moments. And when you bring, when you bring a family in, and you're not going to be able to do that with, with guys that have been around 20 years, they're not going to allow it. They, they want their privacy. He was young. It was, you know, that was a surreal moment for him. I mean, his head was buzzing. I remember that. It was funny. I hadn't thought of that since you brought up his, his head was all over the place. His eyes were going like this, you know, because what a month earlier, nobody had ever heard of the guy. And now he's getting a standing ovation, 60 grand at Chavez Ravine. Right. So I remember that. And yeah, and he brought in, yeah, his young wife. And I think they had a baby or something. Yeah. It was just one of those moments. You're like, I could see it and the camera couldn't see it. And I'm thinking, well, that's way better than this. So bring it in. But honestly, I don't remember a conscious thought about it. I'll tell you, on, you remember this game, opening day against the Giants, Kershaw on the bump, and he pitches a complete game, shutout, and hits a home run. You remember that? Yes. So afterwards, of course, I get him on the field. So, you know, they play I Love L.A. and Randy Newman's going crazy and everyone's jumping up and down. And just to give me 30 seconds to get Kershaw. Now, normally – as you know, the starting pitcher is long gone. He's in the clubhouse. You never see him, but he's out there and he's jumping around with his teammates. So I point at him and he, Kurt, you know, Kershaw, and he would, he would, he just did one of these things. Oh, you know, like this is the last thing, dude. I want to do is come over and talk to this sock puppet. I want to go celebrate and have a good time. And I'm, I'm like, dude, come on, help me out. And Kershaw's a great kid. And so he comes over and I get him next to me and our camera guy's there and then produces my ear. He's like, you ready? And I just give a nod, right? I get like this, come to me. They pop us up. Now, not only are we on TV, but we're on the big screen. As soon as the crowd, 60,000 at, at the stadium, see us on the big screen and they pull down, I love LA, the crowd erupts again. Just deafening. Just a cacophony of noise. And I'm standing next to him. And I can tell it's going to last a, a few seconds. And I got a great compliment from a friend uh, that works with my wife in finance, not even in sports, but a huge Dodger fan who was watching the game. Didn't even know I did this. Really proud that I did it. It's one of the coolest moments of my life. I'm standing next to Kershaw. So I, I look over his shoulder. I can see the big screen. It's Kershaw and I standing side by side. 60,000 people going crazy. We saw a historic, a Koufax-esque moment in Dodger history. And I looked up and I go, one of these things is not like the other. And it's me. And I just slowly slid out of the shot and gave him his space. And he stood there by himself got the standing ovation, doffed his cap, 
And you know, Kershaw is embarrassed with that kind of attention. And I looked at him, I said, you let me know when you're ready. And he waited about 10 seconds because he was doing it for the crowd, not milking it. And then he looked at me and just nodded. And then I stepped back in and the crowd came down and then I asked him the questions. And they were just basic questions. And I don't remember anything I asked him, but that moment was, was cool for me because it proved what I preach. And that is, it's not about you. I didn't throw a complete game. I didn't, you know, uh, hit a home run. Uh, and, and I'm not the guy out there with the, with the Texas mullet at Highland High School getting, you know, this biggest moment of your career so far. Nobody cared about me, so I got out of the shot. How long do you think it took you before you really understood those moments and how to not rush but play that moment right where you really felt comfortable enough where you yeah. would – step aside or where you would wave over a family? How long do you, th before you got comfortable in your skin to do that? I would, yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I'd say 10, 12 years in your, in your career. I remember when I first started, my first job was at a cable TV station in Southgate, right? And in Southgate, California, South of Los Angeles. And I would do the high school football games and all the sports. And then I had a talk show with the football coach. We show highlights. But one day they asked me to do a telethon, a 24-hour telethon, and they wanted me to host it. It was in the parking lot. What they did is they did a farmer's market. And they had about 40 booths set up, and they have lights and porta-potties and a concession stand, and they go 24 hours, and they wanted me to be awake the whole time. So, of course, I try to, like, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an idiot. You know, I start out at this point. I try to, oh, I'm 23, 24 years old, you know, it's my, I think my senior year in college, and, uh, and I, I tried to script like the first hour, you know, but after 15 minutes, it's over. You're walking around interviewing people and Southgate is, is mostly Hispanic. So most people are speaking to me in broken English or Spanish through a, a cousin who can translate and all kinds of things. So all of my notes and all my planning just went out the window and you just had to, you just had to ride the current. And I tell people all the time, think of yourself as a kayaker, you know, all they can really control is maybe the direction, but the speed and, and the bounce and the water. And the, you just you got to go with that. You just, you just got to ride it. Anyway, I did 24 hours on air. And when I got off the air that day, I think I was different. Um, I think because I said, well, I can handle anything now. I just talked for 24 hours. And I took breaks. We had bands come on and things like that. But if, if I could do that and not embarrass my family, uh, then I figured I can get through a three or four minute interview. Now, you know, because when we do those interviews on the field at Dodger Stadium, there's a delay, like, you know, I'm asking a Kershaw question. It doesn't come out of the speakers for three seconds. So you really got to dial in. And when you're doing your radio stuff, you're timing it. You got crowd, you got people running around. The other teammates are coming by and pouring water on people and pushing the guy and yelling, great game, man, hitting him on the head. And, you know, there's a lot of distractions and you do have to stay, stay right there. And I, I always tell people that when you're doing a post-game interview, like in a locker room or on the field, and it's a crazy scene, you have to think of yourself this way that whoever you're interviewing, they're the stripper and you're the pole. So you both, you both need each other, but nobody cares about the pole, Josh. You can have that if you want it. The way I look at it. Oh, my goodness. I will never look at a pole the same way. Okay, how do I transition from this one? Actually, what, what, when you're talking about doing a 24-hour uh, <laughs> marathon like that, 
the part that, that, that actually comes to me is like, this is where being a bartender helps. This is yeah. where whatever jobs that you have done in your life that are not related to sports, especially if it's something where you're forced to talk to people and some people just want their drinks and some people are lonely as can be and they want some, some companionship here from dude across the bar and how much that helps when you're doing all these different types of interviews. Some of, you know, a lot of it's just your obnoxious personality. Funny thing is when I was a kid and the people I went to high school with cannot believe I do what I do for a living because I was super shy in high school, never had a date, never went to a dance. Uh, I was the youngest of five, the Watsons, I was little Waddy and that's what people called me. And so I just, you know, I was, I started school the year early. So I was smaller than everybody else. You know, there are guys in my class that had hair on their chest and two kids at home. And, you know, I'm still walking around talking like this. You know, so, so I just, I didn't fit in so well. Um, but when I found, when I got a job as a bartender, it, it kind of brought everything out. And, and because I was kind of nervous about it, I would talk to people. And, and then I found I could talk to anybody. And I always tell people, when you do an interview, and especially if you haven't a lot of time to prep, just keep asking. It's just like when you date a girl for the first time. Ask her about her. Just keep asking about her. You don't have to have so much of you. Just keep why, how, when, how did that come about? Where'd you get there? You know, everybody's got a story. Where'd you grow up? What was your family like? Where's your best place to go on vacation? You know, all the stuff that social media does now on dating sites. So when I was a bartender and I got, I got pretty good at the, the gift of gab and making drinks and all that. One time a promotions guy in, and I worked for a restaurant chain came in and he goes, Hey, I want you to host turtle races turtle races, turtle races in the bar. And this is a big thing in Southern California. So you take a bunch of turtles, you put them in the middle of the dance floor. And the first one out of a circle wins like a bottle of champagne. Well, we took it further than that. So I wore a complete green outfit, which I got as a volunteer at the 1984 Olympics working volleyball and fencing. I thought, when am I ever going to wear this again? And here it is. So I'm wearing this green pants, this green shirt, this turtle races, the name of the restaurant. And then one of the restaurant uh, manager's wives took a, a stuffed turtle and, and split it in the middle so it opened up and put it on a baseball cap. And I'd wear that. And then I'd take the microphone and then I'd get some good looking girl out of the crowd and I'd put her in a referee t-shirt, like a Foot Locker referee shirt. She'd tie it in a knot. We'd put this, this mat down on the dance floor, like a basketball circle. And then I used a fettuccine basket from the, from the kitchen that I turned upside down as the starting gate. The health department wasn't big on that, but we put all these turtles underneath. So the, the girl in the ref shirt and I would go around the bar with clipboards and rent turtles to owners. So for two bucks, you rent a turtle, name it anything you want. You can imagine the stuff we got. And then we do heats. So five turtles in a heat, winter advances to the main event. And so you get a bottle of champagne if you win your event. If you win the whole thing, you get a bottle of champagne, a t-shirt autographed by me, and dinner for two at the restaurant. And it got so popular, we had, we had standing room only, then you couldn't get in the place. Then they started having me do it at five restaurants a week. Then I broke away and did it on my own. I was doing seven or eight restaurants a week, sometimes two in a night. And part of my deal, so it was, I got a hundred bucks cash, uh, all the beer I could drink, and I got to eat. So I'd go in the kitchen and I'd been a cook in a restaurant. I'd go right for the prime rib, slice off something like that couple of pieces of French bread, horseradish, wrap it in foil. And I'd have two or three of these things at the end of the night, two o'clock in the morning, I'm at home eating this, you know, watching Cinemax and I got turtles running all over my apartment. So this, this is how it all started. But I had, I had to sit, I had to sit in, I had to sit in a, in a bar and entertain drunks who, who don't want to hear the music go down and don't want to be interrupted, you know, and I'd have to get their attention. 
and, and it would take like five minutes before you could hear yourself. And you've talked at banquets when people are eating and the clanking of silverware and it was mumbling. So you have to tell a story or a joke where people turn and go, did he just say that? So I would say these shocking things. It was, it was safe. It was in a bar and nobody's recording it. Um, it, but it gave me confidence to speak extemporaneously. Then I got in college, had a speech class. I did one speech in my class. The teacher said to me, you need to stay after. I did uh, five minutes on running a marathon and started with the lights out in the classroom. That was my big, you know, dramatic moment. I finished. She goes, stay here. I want to talk to you. Everyone leaves. I'm like, oh, I must be in trouble. I did it wrong. She goes, you're not in this class anymore. Now you're on the speech team. And that dragged me kind of further out of my shell. And so I did that in college too. Wow. Oh my goodness. So, I mean, let's face it. Anytime that you're hosting turtle races, that makes it very easy to, to do other sports that are actually sports. Right. When hopefully this will be a decent segue with the 39 different sports that you've done play by play on. What was the first time that you did something that was not a turtle race that you didn't know that much about the sport and you were nervous about your ability to pull it off? I got women's volleyball when I was working at Fox. I was already doing, um, I was doing basketball and some baseball, some pregame shows. I was just kind of working my way in. And Bill McDonald, who's the uh, play-by-play announcer for the Lakers, a good friend of mine told me at the time, whatever they ask you to do, say yes. Yes, I'll do that. Yes, I've done that. Yes, I can handle that. No problem. So they call me up one day and say, hey, I want you to do women's volleyball in what was then the Pac-10. Sure. Have you done that? Sure. I'd never even played volleyball. Wasn't even really aware of the rules. I knew three hits and it's over. But I still called it a spike. You had, now it's a kill. So here's what I did. This is before the internet. So I lived by UC Irvine. I was living down in Orange County. So I knew the volleyball coach at UC Irvine because when I was working in cable TV, I'd done a story on him. Called him up. I said, can I come to practice? He said, sure. I said, I just want to talk to you about volleyball. I got, I got a gig. I'm going to call volleyball. I don't know how, how it works come to practice. So I came to practice, stood next to him, took notes, asked him questions. They're running plays, all kinds of things. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. He says, come back tomorrow, but wear a pair of shorts and tennis shoes. He put me in the line. They're hitting balls at me. I'm having to dig. They put me up on a chair so I could set and, and, and kill and, you know, hit balls down at the court so I could see angles and all. So it really opened up my eyes. So then that weekend I called volleyball and I was awful, but Nobody else wanted it. So I came back the next week and I was a little less awful. And it got that way. Two years, less than two years after I called my first volleyball match, I did beach volleyball at the Olympics in Australia for NBC. 20 million people watched the gold medal match. That was less than two years after learning the sport. Total luck. Got away with it. Had great analysts. And it's the Olympics. Less is more. Uh, and it turned out to be this great uh, match. Eric Fanoi Moana, Dane Blanton from the United States, only been together like nine months as a pair. The second-ranked American team, no chance on the world stage, put together a magical run, upset the number one Brazilians in the final, 10,000 people, Bondi Beach, Bob Costas throwing to me, my analyst, Karch Cry, Mike Dodd, and my sideline reporter, Bill Walton. What am I doing there? It just happened. What? And everybody I knew in the world emailed me the next day. It was unbelievable. That is so awesome. Um, oh, my goodness. That's, that's such a pinch me moment, especially <laughs> because it's a sport, like you said, that two years before you didn't know. That's right. So get this. So I was only supposed to do the, the qualification matches at the Olympics. 
And then for the, for the medal matches, they were going to bring Paul Sunderland and um, um, what's his name? The Denver Nuggets announcer. Uh, Marlowe, Chris Marlowe. Chris Marlowe, thank you. A friend of mine and, and uh, his kid interned for us. Chris Marlowe. So they were going to come out. They were doing indoor volleyball. They were going to come out and do the beach volleyball. And so when we finished qualification, my brother had paid for me to go to college. So I flew him to Australia. He was staying in my room. Me and him and Dodd and – I don't know, five, six other guys from NBC. We all went out to a karaoke bar. I'm done with the Olympics. I, I still have a job. Biggest thing I've ever done. It's, it came off successfully. Remember, I hadn't called the medal matches. I get back to my room, three o'clock in the morning. I've lost my voice singing Rocket Man in a bar somewhere. And, you know, I, I smell, like, <laughs> smell like, you know, uh, Sapporo and uh, Asahi. And, and I get to my door at, at the Intercontinental Hotel Dodd, Dodd and I get off the elevator. He goes one way, I go the other. We're at our doors, and there's NBC envelopes taped to our door. And I go, oh, maybe this is a congratulations, nice work. And I open it up, and I still have the card. It says, great job on the Olympics so far. Looks like you're the Americans' good luck charm. You're calling the medal matches. See you in the lobby, 9 a.m. Dick Ebersol. Dick Ebersol is the grand poobah of sports. He'd never spoken to me. This guy created sports. I'm like, oh. And I look down the hallway, and there's Dodd. He goes, we're screwed. <laughs> so I went in. I slept for six hours. I got up. I went downstairs, got in the van with Walton. And Walton looks at me. I'm not saying a word all the way to Bondi Beach. I'm like, you know, sipping my tea. And Walton looks at me. He goes, he called me the bandicoot, which is an Australian bird on the beach there. And he goes, what's wrong with you, bandicoot? And I'm like, he goes, dude, normally I can't shut you up. Now you're not going to talk to me? I'm like, so we go and we have a production meeting. My producer's like, Jim, what do you think we should open with? I'm like, said, why wouldn't you talk? I'm like, so I didn't tell anybody because that was smart, right? Just leave NBC on the hook. Right. I didn't tell anybody until about an hour before I pulled my producer. She goes, what's the problem? Are you ill? And I go, pharyngitis. She goes, what? <laughs> like, you got, you got to tell me if you can do this. And I said, well, we'll find out. So she did have somebody, one of the other players standing by that could have jumped in. Uh, but so here it is. So helicopter comes in over the, over the, uh, the, the sea coming into to Bondi and the Tasman sea. And it, it goes from purple to blue to light blue. And then the helicopter flies up and over the stadium like this and here, bum, 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 bum. And Bob Costa says, it's the best beach party in the world. Let's go to Bondi beach, Bill Walton. Cause you always go with your biggest first. Mike Dodd, Karch Cry, and Jim Watson. And then they send off fireworks, daytime fireworks off the stadium. They get the crowd to do the wave. And then the camera comes to me. And I go, hi, everybody, and welcome to Bondi. You know, wow. welcome back to the beach, whatever. I talked for two hours. I, heard my, I remember my producer, Terry Schindler, who ended up working for the WNBA, and her, her, um, her husband uh, was the Boston Celtics radio announcer. And she's in my ear and she goes, thank goodness, when my voice came out. Uh -huh. And what was great is I had to speak less that day than normal to, to, you know, to save it. And then it just became this great moment where Fanoi Moana blocks at the net to win the gold medal. Huge upset. The Australian crowd, totally on the side of the Americans because they're the underdogs. He blocks and all he yell is, the Americans win the gold medal and laid out. And it was like 90 seconds of crowd noise, and then they go put a bow on it. And I asked Dodd for a comment. I finished, and I remember leaning back, 
and thinking, oh my goodness, what just happened? Changed, changed my life. I ended up working for NBC a lot after that. Uh, just the fact they took a shot on me and let me have it, it was, it was awesome. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I know that I talk to kids all the time. Uh, and it's fun that I get to say that I talk to kids now, um, that I'm old enough that I can say that. And <laughs> yeah. I, I use you as an example all the time when they say, oh, I really want to, you know, I really want to do baseball play-by-play. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But do soccer, do volleyball, do water polo. Right. And I list all these different sports because I tell them, number one, not a lot of people know how to do those sports or are willing to do those sports. And you can carve out a career for yourself. Look, everyone wants to do the Super Bowl or they want to be the next Vince Scully or the next Chick Hearn. Um, kind of a weird setup to this question, but what were your expectations when you're attending these six different colleges and you're thinking, this is what I want to do? Like, what were your expectations then versus what your career has turned into? Like every other kid in college, I was an idiot. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to be the Lakers announcer, or, you know, the Dodgers announcer because I grew up in Southern California. You know, I really wanted to do college sports. I thought I'll be UCLA's, you know, basketball and football announcer, maybe work at a university like that. I didn't even look at all these other sports, but remember ESPN kind of launched while I was coming up. So, you know, besides like truck poles and things, there weren't a lot of these other sports even televised. So it's not surprising that I didn't think of that as a, as a, an option, as a, as a different way to go. But when I started working at Fox and I was the low guy, they, they put me on rodeos and track meets and all kinds of stuff water polo, like you mentioned, because nobody else wanted to do it. Nobody else wanted to look bad. They all had reputations. I was a nobody. Nobody cared who I was. So if I made a fool out of myself, one, probably nobody would notice, and two, who would care? But if, you know, one of the big name announcers went, went out and, and tried one of these things and looked bad, it would, could damage his career. So I did them, and you're right, there wasn't no one else to compare it to. I was doing uh, weightlifting at the London Olympics. And a couple of days before I was going to finish, I'd never done weightlifting. And a couple of uh, uh, days before I was going to finish my Olympic run, I get a call from Molly Solomon, who once again is the president of NBC Olympics. And she said, I need you to, to stay and do another sport for me. And I said, I- I'm packing, I'm getting ready, you go home in a couple of days. She said, help me out. Molly Solomon, maybe the coolest person I've ever met in sports. She's an unbelievable woman. And she says, help me out. I said, of course, Molly, I- I'll never be able to repay what you've done for me. What can I do? She said, I need you to do Taekwondo. 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 I said, I don't know anything about Taekwondo. And she said, nobody does. She said, she goes, you'll go learn it like you learn all the other sports. And I'm not the only guy at NBC. There's a lot of guys who do it. There's a guy named Steve Schlanger at NBC who's done 40-something sports, more than me. And he'll do two, three sports at the Olympics in a day. He'll do archery, pistol, and all these amazing things. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable what that guy pulls off. So anyway, I went on the internet. By now there's internet. You can go on. And you learn about a sport and you learn the basics, you learn the rules. And then I always like to learn a little bit of the history. I like to know where we came from to where we're going and how important this is. And the countries that are, you know, Taekwondo is the national uh, sport of Korea. And, and so you knew the Koreans would be big. So I tried to learn a little bit more about Korean culture and the sport in that, in that environment and why it's so, you know, thousands, five, 10,000 people at events in Korea. But then you don't pretend you know more. You know, especially if, like in those days, I think I was doing Dodger pregames and, you know, Kings and all these things. So people in LA knew I didn't know Taekwondo. I wasn't calling Taekwondo. So just don't pretend you know more than you do, right? You have, a, you have someone sitting next to you who's an expert. So I always say this to kids coming up. You don't have to know the answers. You just have to know the questions to get this guy to talk. And you know who they gave me is my analyst for Taekwondo. They gave me Pat Croce. 
Pat Croce, the former owner of the Philadelphia 76ers, really started out as a trainer for the 76ers. Then he started uh, doing private training on the side for some of the athletes. And then he opened his own health clubs, then a string of health clubs, and then ended up selling it, made millions of dollars, came back and bought the 76ers. And he's got houses all over the world, but he's got one in Key West next to Jimmy Buffett's place. And he's, this is a guy who knows everybody. Awesome dude. And so I meet him and I'm like, why is he the guy? And he's a black belt in Taekwondo. And he's a, you think I'm obnoxious. This guy, A++++ personality, just going 100 miles a minute. But he knew the sport. He was so much fun to work with. He had great stories. The only problem is every time, and here's me, and here I'm playing him. Every time he wanted to talk, he hit me. <laughs> For four days. Hey, Waddy. Hey, Waddy. Every time. But he always paid for dinner, so I let him do it. <laughs> it was awesome. What is a sport that you have not broadcast that you would like to broadcast at some point in your career? I, you know, I've never, done, uh, I've never done lacrosse. And I think uh, I would like to do lacrosse because it's, it looks like a fun game and it moves quickly. But I actually think lacrosse is going to replace football at the high school level uh, in the next 50 years. Uh, I don't think high schools are going to be able to get medical coverage for this, all the CTE problems. And it's too much to put on coaches, you know, that are volunteer coaches to get kids out of practices that a concussion, but kids still want contact. They want to play in the big field. The school needs a rallying point. And even for small colleges, for homecomings and for donors and that kind of thing, you need something. And to me, lacrosse is the most logical replacement. It just kind of slides onto that field, played under the lights. There's still contact. There's high scoring. Uh, it's big back East. It's migrated all the way as far as I can see to Denver and now the private schools in California are playing it. And I just think that that's going to be a half measure. They're still going to play football. There's always kids going to be doing that. But I think, you know, I grow, I, I live in a town in San Diego. When I moved here, there were 55 kids on the high school football team. Last year, there were less than 30. The lacrosse team went the opposite direction. So I'm seeing it played out where I live. Have you done curling? I've not done curling. Uh, there's a friend of mine who calls a lot of the curling for NBC and he's never given it up. He loves it. And yeah, it's to me, I like you turn on curling. You're like, I'm not watching this. And an hour later, you're like, I'm still watching this. And you're what, an expert. <laughs> what, is, right, what is it about curling? I'm walking around. Like, that was an awful stone. <laughs> <laughs> I knew nothing, you know, but I just showed you how I learned my sports right an hour People yeah. watching to learn a sport. Yeah, that's my favorite part about the Olympics is you start watching something and it's like, how long does it take before you're an expert and you're doubting everything that the coach and the athletes are doing? I got to do uh, ski jumping for NBC. It's called the Four Hills. Um, it's within this, the season of ski jumping. They do four events in four consecutive weeks. They're like these traditional events. Uh, they're the most important events. And so you call all four of them right in a row, uh, four weeks in a row. I did it for NBC. I knew nothing about it. By the end of it, we had a fantasy league. <laughs> well because you're there for four hours right, right? <laughs> by the way uh, always take the norwegians did you, yeah how did you finish in this fantasy league uh like i actually did all right i, did, I was like in the middle the producer was great because he had been doing it for years and he knew some of the some of the guys who would hold back there were italians who weren't doing very well and then when the when the big events come up they just uncork it and you know they'd always end up on the podium oh that was fun you know what sport I would love to do? I don't know how I would do it, but I would love to do billiards. 
Are they still televising billiards? I'm sure somebody does. There's enough channels out there. I'm sure it's got to be somewhere. I, I think it would be really fun to do billiards. What happened to poker? Remember when poker was on like eight channels a day? I don't see yeah. much poker on anymore. Yeah, that one, that one kind of came and went pretty quickly. Well, not that quickly. And we're, we'd sit at home and stare at guys that were staring at cards. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, was, that, was that before cable? <laughs> Unfortunately, it was during cable. Yeah. Um, let, let me talk to you more about analysts. Uh, and you've already started to mention some of them and some of the great stories. And geez, you've probably worked with over 100 analysts, if not 200 oh, analysts yeah. in all the yeah. sports. What is the key to developing instant chemistry with someone who you just met or that you barely know? You better know who they are and you better know what they've done. So a little bit of flattery. You walk in, shake the guy's hand. Hey, it's great to meet a six-time All-Pro. Hey, when you were at Arizona State, and then you start asking him questions about himself, right? Because as we all know, celebrities, athletes love to talk about themselves. But right away, he's like, he understands you're not trying to be on his plane. You're saying, I get it. I'm here. You played in two Super Bowls. I know who I am. I know my job is to set you up all day long. So once they don't feel like they have to carve out their spot in the booth, and remember, they're coming into your world, right? So you make things easy for them. And I always tell, especially a new analyst who's a little nervous maybe about the TV thing, I say, listen, you're not here to do TV. You're here to do football. I do the TV. You're just going to worry about football. And I, you'll see their body relax. They go, oh, it's great, man. I, I don't know how to get in out of commercials and all this. I go, no, 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 that's, that's, that's what Cable Boy does. You just do the football, right? So when I, when I ask you to tell me a 3-4 and a 4-3 and the advantages of it, that's where you're breaking it down. So, you know, the open, when you first come on camera, that's the scariest thing for most analysts because they're looking at the camera and there's no play going on. So you, you make sure that you set them up for it ahead of time that they know what's coming. Ten years later, they don't even need to know. You can just throw anything at them. They got it. But that first time you say, listen, I'm going to ask you about the Bears linebacking core. So be set ready with 20 seconds of that. Now, when you tell a guy 20 seconds and he's never been on TV, he thinks that's an, a minute and a half. Right. <laughs> so you always do a little dry run, you know, and not necessarily a rehearsal, but I say, hey, listen, I'm going to bring it on. Here we are. And, you know, great day, whatever, Soldier Field. And, hey, tell me about the Bears linebacking core. They're, they're ranked number one in the conference right now. Boom. And, and then he starts going. And usually I'll have a – in the old days, it'll stop watching. Now you do it on your – on your iPhone, you just have the timer running and he gets through two sentences and he's at 23 seconds and you're like, that's all I need. And he's like, that's it? I'm like, that's it. Then I also tell kids all the time, I don't have one with me, but a three by five card, right? Four by six, whatever. Have it in your hand with bullet points. Just the topics you want to get through or if there's a statistic, it's a little tricky or a name phonetically. Just get it right. We're not, we're not actors. We don't have to memorize script, right? So when you're reporting, look at the guy's on the cable channels in front of the White House, they're reporting off a notepad. They want to get it right, right? If, if I'm the viewer, the information is way more important than the performance, right? So if I have to glance down at a name or a stat or a ranking or whatever, a transition, or if I forget my next topic and I just look down at it for a second, I just pop my head and right back, who cares? Nobody cares, but you get, and it relaxes you. It's like, it's a security blanket. Plus, if you write it down, you tend to memorize it. You know, it's in your head and, and then if you just glance at it, that one keyword, you know, stimulates the thought you want and you, and you just roll. I, I remember Tony Kornheiser did something on, um, on PTI once that I thought was so simple and yet so genius and I've totally stolen it. And he said something like, you know, he starts to talk about something and he goes, I'm going to the glasses. <laughs> okay, well, besides that, but, but he'll say, 
and, and I wrote some notes about them, and so I'm going to refer to them. Or he yeah. would say, and this is a really important stat, so let me make sure yes. I get it right as he right. looks down. Like, you know why? Because he's okay. a reporter, right? He was yeah. a writer before he was on TV. And, and by the way, to me, the best sports show on TV, right? Uh, to watch Wilbon and Kornheiser, you know, almost like this, just get after each other and they know each other. And then afterwards, they, you, know, you know, they're still best friends of all time. They've known each other forever and they've helped each other in their careers. Uh, but I just like it because those guys are so bulletproof now. They're such made men. They can say whatever they want, even if it goes against ESPN, even if it goes against the NFL. You know, Wilbon hates the NFL. And just to hear him, when I watch that, I go, this is unfiltered. I'm actually getting his opinion. And he's there and he understands what's going on. You know, they have their allegiances too. He works the NBA, so he's very kind to the NBA. And he, he mentions Michael Jordan in every show, regardless if it's basketball season or not. But because those guys were journalists, I think it makes them a lot better. And I, yeah, I love watching that show. And again, like Kornheiser, going to the notes, right? Get, he has that big yellow pad. And he flips over and he reads the stat, right? Because he's, he's realizing it's more important to get the stat right than what he looks like. You know, it's, you got to get your vanity and your, your get, move your van, vanity out, bring your humility in and laugh at yourself. They make fun of themselves all the time, how old they are, how out of shape, you know, how they've been doing this for 50 years. You know, they don't make any bones. They tr don't try to be younger. They, the bald brotherhood, you know, they, and, and then if you're watching, you feel like you're on their plane, right? They're not doing this, right? I got sidetracked from analysts because um, oh, yeah. that's what always happens, but that's fine. Um, how does, say, an analyst in gymnastics differ from, say, a basketball analyst? So, remember, most sports, uh, you know, during the play, you're, you're calling it, and then the replay belongs to the analyst in football. Right? Joe Buck calls the play, and then, and then Troy Aikman does the replay, right, and tells why it happened. Okay, gymnastics is a reverse. I set it up, and then once the gymnast mounts the apparatus, then I step back. Because now I let the Olympic gold medalist, Amanda Borden, or Sam Peshek, two-time NCAA champion, this is their thing. And I, I tell them, this is jazz for you right now. Just riff. Just let it come. Because you're going to be watching it. They usually know the routine. They've watched it in warm-ups. So they know what to expect. They know what the, the dangerous parts are. They know how long it's going to last, what it builds up to. And I just tell them, just let it flow. Just react to it as it's happening. And tell me, this is... This is the big release move right here. This is critical because I always think it's better for an analyst to tell me what I'm about to see rather than what I just saw because then I get to go for the ride, right? Tim Daggett, who does the Olympics on NBC Gymnastics, does that. I've worked with Tim. He really built up before they even get up. He's like, she's got a release move. She's been struggling with it. She had to decide if she's going to leave it in or not. We're going to find out. It's the biggest routine of her life. I would say don't leave it on the, on the floor. You got to throw it out there. Go for the gold right now. This is it, right? So you're already excited before she's even started. I'm excited right waiting, now. <laughs> right? You're, you're waiting for Daggett to say, here it comes. Here it comes. Right? And, and you build all the way up to it. And then you, you get to see and you know, because now you feel like you're, you're inside the curtain, inside the velvet rope, right? You know, this is the big moment for that gymnast. Everybody in gymnastics knows it. We're all watching that one moment and it's about to happen. And, and that's why sports is great because of the drama, right? It's unpredictable. That's why we all love sports. If the best team always won, who would watch it? Tell me some more of your favorite analysts or just favorite analyst stories, um, whether it's just the uniqueness of the sport or whether it's just a larger than life personality where you just go, oh my goodness, like th this, this is so much fun right now. Well, uh, working with Bill Walton was unbelievable. He's just a fantastic guy. He's very generous on air. 
you know, as long as you let him do his little thing, he'll always dance right back to you. And, and he likes to get energy from you. So I think he works with Dan Schulman all the time and they have a nice little, uh, they almost have a, an uncomfortable on air, you know, relationship. And it's fun to watch when I work with him, I laugh with him, but I add on to his stories. And he, after I worked on the first time, I go, Are you okay with that? Because I love that. He goes, because you validate what I said and you make it seem like I'm not off all by myself on an island and I have to come back to you. That you'd go out with me and then come back. As long as you're, you keep calling the game. I, in football, you know, it's funny. I always think the best analysts in football are linemen because they see the game that we don't watch, right? Right. It, the, you know, the, the hogs in the trenches. We all watch the quarterback. And I've worked with quarterbacks and running backs and wide receivers. And they – pretty much say what you expect them to say. And they maybe give you some insight about how to break, get some separation from a D back and that kind of thing. But when a, when a, especially a game that, you know, it's going to be a running game and a team is establishing the run, getting four yards every time. And it's kind of boring. A lineman, you know, he asked for a camera on those, those, you know, 10, uh, you know, guys, the 10 linemen on both sides and he'll break it down and show you, you know, cross blocking and, and pulling a guard and kicking out the corner and, setting the edge and all these little things. And, you know, I don't want to be a football expert. I like knowing about what I know. That's what his job is. But when he pulls me in and goes, watch this happen to me, it's, it's interesting. It's like going in the lab with the scientist where I walk into my own, it's boring. It's a bunch of beakers. I don't know what's going on, but if he goes, watch, watch this chemical reaction. And he tells me why it's going to happen. That, I don't know, for me, that pulls me in. I don't, I don't need the quarterbacks. I know everybody loves Tony, Tony, Tony Romo. And he's fantastic. And he kind of made a name because he's predicting plays. And that's cool because he's telling me what I'm about to see and all that. But I, I still like listening to linemen. I like I liked Dan Deardorff. Nobody you know, liked him after a few years on air. I thought he was great. I'm just going to give you a, a sport and just tell me like some of the analysts that you've worked with or whatever and like what, what comes to mind. Uh, you mentioned weightlifting earlier. You did the Olympics uh, in London 2012. Tell me about weightlifting analysts. So you always, I mean, in Olympic sports, you always get a guy who uh, lifted or, you know, competed at that level in the Olympics. And, uh, and so, you know, and they, they gave me a guy who had been in, in three Olympics out of Oklahoma, big giant dude. And so the first thing I did with him is I, I sat down with him uh, a couple of days for the Olympics and we just talked about weightlifting and we talked about, you know, how guys get into it and uh, how you get to that level. And, what you work on when you're in the gym and just all the, and I wasn't going to use any of that on the air. I just need to come at something from the outside in and start peeling those layers back so that I have an understanding of it. Um, and then he starts telling me the sacrifices and then, you know, everybody comes at you and says, you need to do steroids and you need to, you know, to do all these growth hormones and all these things. And you have to make that decision. And, and then you have to deal with injuries. And so, you know, so even though it's just a guy throwing up heavy plates, there's a lot more that goes into it. And the great thing, and the reason everybody loves the Olympics, and you said this before, you're watching a sport you've never watched before. And after a couple of nights watching it, now you're completely into it. Because sports at their, at their core, at their essence, are all about winning, losing, and overcoming adversity. It's just the human drama being played out. The Olympics are awesome because you know a guy spent four years, probably his whole life, getting to this moment. And he may never get it again. He may never come back. And to me, just to sit there and watch somebody's dream either crash to the floor or come true is fantastic. And the Olympics are people you've never heard of. Speed skaters and weightlifters and ski jumpers and 
you know, pistol shooters and archery. And to them, it's the Super Bowl. It's their biggest thing. You and I didn't even know about it. Acosta says, let's go out, you know, let's go out to the whitewater rafting right now. And you're like, yeah, all right, I'll give it a look. And 15 minutes later, you see a guy in tears yelling into the camera to his wife back in Kenosha. I did it, honey. I did it. And you're like, that's fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about other sports and what my anxieties would be if I was asked to do them. And when I think about water polo, I think, how do you identify people who are in the water? I know they have a number that's on their cap, but still like, it's not like you're in the water next to them. So how do you identify and how do you get over maybe not knowing exactly who has the ball at all times? So I did a lot of water polo and the guy who got me into it was Greg Meskel. And Greg Meskel was the PR director for the U S Olympic water polo team. And he was so good at it that he took my job. Now I don't do it anymore. He, he doesn't, but he should have. He's way better than I'll ever be at it because he lives the sport. Okay, so here's what's great about water polo. First off, it's an hour and 15 minutes. So you're in and you're out, baby. It's great. You're on a pool deck. You know, it's, it's a real uh, California sport. It's played across the country, but it's, it's predominantly California. So you're outside, the weather's nice, and, you know, it's fun, it's short, and there's high scoring. Water polo is a cross between basketball, because you set up in a half court, soccer, because you're going up and down and trying to shoot into a goal, and swimming. It's three different sports all crammed into one. And so just like in soccer, where you pretty much know the shots are going to be taken by the attackers and maybe the midfielders, and the defenders are laying back. Same thing in water polo. The two-meter guy, guy who plays with his back to the cage, and it's not a net, it's a cage, right? That guy, is, he's the center on a basketball team. He's down the block. They're trying to feed him. The snipers are on the wings because they want angles. And in one corner, you're going to have a left-hander because he's got the better angle, right? You're not going to put the left-hander, uh, you know, say, say the court is like this and you're shooting at this goal. You're not going to put the left-hander here. He's got no angle. But you put him here, he gets a little better angle coming out, right? So little, little things like that. But you, and then you look at the scoring, and there's usually three or four guys that are you know, averaging five or six goals and 10 shots a match. And there's other guys who have scored three times all year. So you go in kind of knowing who the scores are, but you're right because in water polo, all the numbers are low. So a five, six, eight, nine with water splashing, it's that big on its head. His head's doing this. It's pretty hard to pick it out. The only thing I do is in warmups, I try to watch guys and if they look different, if they're left-handed, right-handed, if they're big, small, they got, you know, blonde hair, or, you know, dark hair, or, you know, no hair sticking out or, you know, whatever it is. Remember, there's no uniform. They're not wearing anything other than, than the cap, you got to find a distinguishing feature. Uh, but I loved Colin Waterpolo. I came totally from outside, never played it, didn't know anything about it. And the first couple of times I did, I go, this sport's great. I mean, those athletes are unbelievable. Halftime's five minutes. Timeouts are one minute. These guys are swimming with somebody on their back. They're doing 40-yard sprints, you know, with a ball in front of them and white water. You know, you can't rest in water polo. Uh, those guys are phenomenal athletes. This is kind of a broadcasting uh, X's and O's nerdy question, but I think it applies to water polo. How often do you watch an event with your eyes? How often do you watch the monitor, especially with something like water polo? I got trained uh, early in my career to play off the monitor. And I don't know where, the, where it came from. I had to have been taught. It couldn't have been an instinct where when I hear a whistle, then I look to the monitor. So I like to call things live because you see a lot more. Then there's a whistle, boom, and I look to the monitor because that's usually where a director will cut to the referee, the coach, the guy who committed the foul, the crowd, and you can play off that picture. And to me, a director and a uh, play-by-play guy are dancing, right? 
So you need your steps together. He's giving you pictures to talk about. He's giving you more information. Some guys like to lead a director and call for a shot. I don't like that so much. I like it to be more in concert, in tandem, where I start to talk about something and he goes, oh, I think he's going to talk about the coach and he cuts over. Most times I am. If I'm not, I weave that into my story. If it's, if it's too far afield, then I just avoid it and bring it back in. But I love when a director jumps on my head and says, great line, Waddy. And I hit that great shot, man. You know, that's just back and forth. And, and to me, when you, can, when you can do that and you get your steps together, it's just a better show at home because you remember the guy at home can only see that screen. He can't see outside of your, your field of vision. So if you're talking about what's in that box all the time, it's just a better show. It's a better experience. And then the other thing about this topic is that we are seeing this more and more, and we're going to see this more and more in the future, I think, is where the broadcaster is not at the event, where some t- they are in a studio. And you have had lots of time, because I know you've said with a smile on your face, I'm going to show up to the studio in flip-flops and, and, a, and shorts, and I'm going to call this game that's on the other side of the planet, and then I'm going to go home to the beach with my wife and kids. That's so, exactly right. What, what are the... Um, what are the most important skills when you only can see the screen and you can't see anything else? So the, the no, number one thing they always tell you, don't pretend you're there. Don't say here in Rio. So I did, I did the Olympics. Uh, I did gymnastics at the, at the Olympics in Rio, but I wasn't in Rio. I was in Stanford, Connecticut, like most of the NBC announcers. NBC doesn't make a secret about it. They just don't advertise it because it's, you know, it's, it's illusion. It's theater, you know, and really does the viewer care if you're there, if you're giving them the same information, they don't really care as long as you're not pretending, you know, don't be, don't lie about it. So you just don't really bring it up. You just say, you know, day three of the gymnastics competition in Rio, it's a wide shot of the arena and the Americans have, have had uh, a mixed bag so far and you go right into your storylines. Um, it's way more difficult for an announcer because you're not there, because you're not feeling the energy, because you're not having instantaneous contact with the athletes, the coaches, the crowd, you're not hearing all the, the talk in the tunnels and, you know, you feel removed from it. The danger is you don't bring the same excitement. So for analysts that haven't done it before, I usually turn, and I don't let them know I do this. I turn their headsets down a little bit so their voice gets quieter and they have to talk louder to hear themselves. And it's kind of faux energy, but it gets them up. Otherwise, as you know, when you wear headphones, Anybody who's ever put these things on knows this. Oh, you get quiet because you can hear yourself so well and you calm down. Well, that's not going to translate well when the arena is packed. You know, I've called basketball games with 12,000 fans going crazy and you're in a studio where it's dead quiet. You have to match that energy. So that's one of the things you learn right away. But you just can't pretend that you're there. And it's not as hard as people think. And you're right. It's the future of our business. Uh, it saves so much more money. It's much easier for the network. And technically, it's, it's better because they can control, all, you know, how many times you've been in an event, your headset goes out, or you can't get an ISDN line, or, you know, whatever it is you need. It just breaks. That's not going to happen in the studio because it's hardwired. It's there all the time. And you walk in, <laughs> there's no traffic. You know, <laughs> you don't have to wait in line uh, at the potty at halftime. So, Yes, I'd much rather be at the event because it just feels real and you're there and that's how I grew up. But I understand where it's going and I, I don't blame networks for doing it. They're, if they save a ton of money, they can do more events. And so everybody wins because then more things are televised. Let me transition from not being there to being right in the middle of champagne celebrations or other just chaos inside uh, clubhouses, locker rooms. 
what are some of your most memorable times with alcohol flying all over the place after someone has just won something really important? Uh, you got to wear goggles in the locker room. You know that, right? Because champagne stinks. Really you know that stinks. Person, that's the worst because you're just doing this the rest of your <laughs> shot, right? So you got to wear the, the silly ski goggles or whatever, whatever you got. You got to do that in the locker room. You know, you brought it up before. We do those on-field interviews. And the big thing, of course, when you're doing an on-field interview is the teammates love to come and dump the water bucket over the top. And here's, here's what I say to sideline reporters. If, you're, if you want that interview, then you need to stay in that interview. When that bucket comes in, do not evacuate. Stay at your post, right? And why? he's getting it. Well, here's why. Here's why I do it. I was doing a live shot with Matt Kemp after a walk-off, right? And Kemp has, you know, just signed a big deal, and he's, you know, an all-star, and the Dodgers love him, and the crowd's going crazy. And I look behind him, and I see Ethier and a couple of the other boys coming with the big Gatorade jug. And I'm like, oh, man, I just bought this suit. I got to get out of the way. But as I saw them coming, he kind of felt it and did one of these and started coming towards me. And I realized if I move, I could step on him. I, I could hit, get an ankle, step on a toe, knock a knee, and then I'm the headline in the Times the next day because <laughs> right. I didn't want to get wet. So – I just stood there and took it like a man. And I figure, especially if the guy is just being ambushed, you know, it's a kill shot. He doesn't even see it coming. He's just, yeah, it was great. I hit a home run. <laughs> Boom. And he's in the waterfall. Just stay in it with him. One of my favorite pictures of all time is that Kershaw day where he pitched a complete game, opening day against the Giants at home and hit the home run. And we did, we did our interview and, you know, he got the standing ovation. I stepped out of the way. Then I came back in and did my three ridiculous questions just to get him talking. And then I see the bucket coming and here comes the bucket. And it's like three of his teammates. So it's me and Kershaw both going like this and the ice is coming over our head. And you see the wide shot with all the cameras and the bunting on top of the dugout and just the corner behind home plate of the stadium. It was the cover of USA Today Sports the next day. And the woman who took the picture, the photographer, maybe a week later, Dodger Stadium walked up and handed me a Manel envelope with an eight by 10 of this thing handed to me it's the only picture of my career that i have up in my house and Where's it at? it's right over my desk where i work because i look at it and it makes me laugh and i just and i remember that and i remember just getting hammered by the water and the ice it was a hot sunny day and as kershaw started back away i just reached out and grabbed his elbow and kept him in the shot and he's shaking <laughs> but he realized what i was doing and stayed right there with me and then we went right into the next question and he was making fun of those guys and and then I finished the interview and I turned back and I looked like a wet dog and he's sitting there, you know, laughing. I mean, it's just a great moment. I mean, look, I'm not a pro athlete. That's the closest I'm ever going to get to what it feels like. Cause I was in the waterfall with Kershaw, you know, 60,000 watching it cover of the newspaper the next day was sports center had it on their highlights. I was there. I was in the moment, man. It's great. I use that when I do uh, you know, after dinner speaking, cause it, you're there, you felt it. I, I feel like there's been, um, uh, a switch over the last half dozen years from I need to get out of the way of the shaving cream or the Gatorade. And now players just stand there and just say, get me like, you know, it's, it's like part of the moment now is here I am. Just get me. It's, it's become, it's become a, a cartoon now. You know, everybody's doing it and, and everyone's waiting for it. And then the reporters realized, Oh, when they do it now, it's going to make the highlights. Well, and now it's hackneyed like anything else. Right. 
you know, like any, any cool thing, any saying or any cool show or a bar that doesn't have a sign, once, it, once, once the, the dorks find out about it, by definition, it's no longer cool, right? right. I, was try, I was trying to find the picture because it's, it's on here. I, I, I know you've seen it before. I'll send it to you one of these days. Oh, here it is. Okay, so here's the picture of me. What I love is that, is that we're, so we're doing this over Zoom, and so he's going to show it to me, not like the, anyone who can see this who is watching the podcast. <laughs> yeah, but you can, can see it. it, and it is pretty awesome. And I'm just standing yeah. in there. And that's Kemp, I think, getting yeah. Kershaw with the yeah. waterfall. And look at all the cameras. I mean, it was on everybody's yeah. newscast. It was, it was nice. That's awesome. It's, it's not televised. Why am, why, why am I wearing makeup? <laughs> By the way, what is your favorite brand of makeup? And how did you figure out what works best uh, for, for me in TV and makeup? Well, listen, um, makeup is all about blending your T-zone. And... I have, I have a problem with, uh, with, with some pink cheeks, you know, cause I'm Scottish. I I'm full of the juices of life. And when I get outside and I forget to wear a hat, I get a little pink. And so I have to blend it all together. And I, I find a, an N35 Mac dusty rose tends to make me, you know, I don't want to look cheap. You know, I just want to look natural and I'm not buying stuff at the drugstore. I, I'm worth it, Josh. I'll spend a little bit on my makeup. You know, Hey, that, that you, might you be know, some- you know you're a veteran in TV when you can put when you can put your makeup on like at your post courtside with fifteen thousand people right before the game starts and you just go ahead and powder up in front of people and you don't even care. This is a great lesson to all the young sportscasters out there that you need to invest in yourself. Don't go cheap on the makeup. Make sure you get some quality makeup. Right, and the other thing is uh, with ties, you know, learn a single and a double Windsor. Because that's kind of my signal to people, whether it's a big event. I go double Windsor if it's playoffs. Single Ooh. Windsor on a Tuesday night game against the Padres, right? So, and remember, when you're on, like this, this is all they're seeing. So the knot is everything, right? And here, here's, a, here's a rule with the, with the buttons on a sport coat. Top button. Always, sometimes, never. The bottom button, never. So always the top button, middle button on a three-button sport coat. Sometimes, never on that bottom one. If you were in charge of a network, what temperature would be the cutoff point between suits and polo shirts? <laughs> you, you did this for me because you know that I just, so when I was doing the Dodger pregame show, we'd tour the Midwest, you know, on a 16-day road trip. You were on those. We're in Cincinnati. It's 130. People were leaving St. Louis to go to Mercury to get relief. And, and it's so humid. You're just dripping wet. And and our boss in L.A. sitting around his pool up in Westlake says, oh, no, no, I want you guys in sport coats. And I, so then I negotiated. I said, well, can we do like dress shirt with a tie? Yeah, you can do that. But I'm working with Steve Lyons. And Steve Lyons, um, how do I say this? Um, he marinates in his own gravy. <laughs> I've, never seen a guy, I've never seen a guy sweat as much as Lyons. Like he's in a sweat hut in, in Sedona. What is, what is going on? I'm right next to him. I'm not sweating like that. And, and I'd say, Steve, you can take our coats off today. And then he turns it off and he, he looks like broadcast news with the pit stains. And it's always, is this noticeable? Like, oh my God. Do you have a wetsuit on under your suit? So then I got to put my coat back on because lions won't get on the treadmill. Mix in a salad, Steve. Oh, The temperature to me. We as, love soon as, it. as soon as I get a little sweat here, <laughs> this coat's coming off. 
we laugh about Psycho because we love him so we much. Love so, Steve Lyons. So let's let's tell Lyons' birthday. Lyons' birthday is my wedding anniversary. And guess which call I make first every year? Psycho. Psycho gets the first call. Love that guy. What, what, make, what fun, makes him uh, so much fun to work? What makes him so much fun to work with? Because he uh, he's unpredictable. He doesn't want to know what's coming. Like I, we'd get on the set to do you know post game, and I'd say, okay, hey, first we're gonna. He goes, I don't care. I saw the game. Just let's go. And you do it with pregame shows too. You know they're formatted. You kind of know. Stuff you're going to talk about the starting pitchers, you're going to talk about the offense struggling or you know, uh, about to go on the road for 12 days, whatever. There are topics you can predict are coming. Lions, I've never worked with a guy that's as organic as that. You know, that just he would sometimes he'd jump in the chair while I'm doing the welcome on the wide shot. You know, we we just do it out in center field and he'd be late arriving or just you know, he knew when he never missed a curtain call ever. He was always there. I would be in the booth sitting next to Kevin Kennedy keeping score. Kevin Kennedy, you know, baseball savant, right? So I'd sit next to him, keeping score, and I'd, he'd go, he's going to go back to our slider right here. I'm like, how do you know that? And then he'd tell me why. I'm like, wow. Then I'd use it on the air as if it were my own. And Lions would be walking around the stadium, bothering Larry King and Alyssa Milano down in the, in the rich seats, and he's not keeping score. And something would happen. I'd look, and he's got his back to the field. Well, then an hour later, we're doing the post game. And we show the highlight, and he knew it was a 3-1, and it was a slider, and it was the second time he'd thrown it in the sequence. And you're like, how does he know that? But that's how Steve watches baseball. He's in the stadium. And remember, he's seeing the game differently than you and I. We didn't play Major League Baseball. He, he's looking at the pitcher. He's picking up signs. He knows tendencies. You know, don't, don't let me fool you in that he doesn't do homework. He does his homework because Steve would get those, those scouting sheets. He, he just did it at home. And because I, I didn't know baseball, I came out, my like, oh my God, I got to study and read the game notes and learn. He already knew all that stuff when he arrived. Uh, but he was fun to work. It always made me laugh, always surprised me. And I think he always brought something. Almost every show I ever worked with him, he brought something that I didn't know about the game. I mean, how many baseball games have we watched in our lives? You know, 25,000 games. And he would point something out. I'm like, I never noticed that. A simple thing. You know, the other player. thing that's fun about Steve is that he knows everybody and you never yeah. know who he's going to run into. And I remember just like one time, I don't know, sometime in the fourth or fifth inning, what are you doing tonight? I don't know. And he's like, George Thorogood's in town. We got backstage passes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. And you, you walked to the stands with him too, right? Like, yeah. We would come down from the press box to work our way out. We'd walk through the, through the, the, uh, the box seats at Dodger Stadium and – I would have to, I learned early, I had to have Steve leave 10 minutes earlier than I would leave. I could walk through there like the invisible man. <laughs> Nobody wanted to talk to me. Or once all they go, hey, uh, Dodger guy. Or, I, my favorite was this, hey, Patrick O'Neill. And I'd say, you betcha. And, but Lions would, would get stopped repeatedly. And what was cool, Steve talked to everybody. He didn't care. Yep. He treated everybody the same. Yeah. Right. He'd sign every and, autograph and take every picture. And, everybody and ask them about themselves. What's your name, man? Shake hands. Thank you for watching. Appreciate it. And not, not big time and not acting like a celebrity, being Steve. Because he was always, remember when he played, and if nobody knows you, Google him. He was always the 25th guy on a 25 man roster. And he was always about to get traded or sent down constantly. Right. That was, that was Lion's thing all the time. Is he was so happy to be there and knew that he had to do everything and squeeze every ounce out of that lemon just to hold that seat. And 
So he's never been allowed to be the big arrogant celebrity. Never. I mean, you, you ask the average guy on the street, hey, remember Steve Lyons? They're like, psycho? That guy's psycho? Oh, the guy who pulled his pants down, right? right. That's what everybody remembers about him. He was actually a pretty good ball player. He sure was. He, he lasted was a long Major time. Major League Baseball for, what, 11 years? Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's wrap this up here. I want you to just kind of give me whether it's uh, – I mean, we've already talked about so many great moments from your career, but whether it is – And some of them were really true. <laughs> <laughs> My wife always says I never let, you know, facts get in the way of a good story. Yeah. Like, like w- when are you happiest? W- when are you happiest and you're like, man, this – I can't believe this is what I do for a living. When are you happiest? You know, it's not a specific sport. It's those moments, you know, standing next to Kershaw that time. Um, you know, I used to cover the Lakers when Kobe and Shaq were rolling and you're right there in the middle of the circus. But it's not always the big event. I mean, I love doing, you know, a college soccer game and there's 50 people there. Kid at UCLA last year scored five goals in a game and afterwards families hugging him down on the field. And, you know, nobody – Nobody cares. But then that night, actually, SportsCenter led, led with a highlight of it, just, you know, because he had, he had five goals five different ways, so it was kind of unique. But those little moments where you see people's lives, you know, changing, having that moment where somebody like a seller, as you've mentioned Justin Sellers before, nobody ever heard of. He's probably not going to be – he's not going to be a star, and he's not going to be up for very long. You know, he's going to have to get a real job. Just watching those and sharing those moments and being right there for it. My, my, one of my favorite things is – when I'm doing a college football game, and I don't even care where it was, I do one at Washington State last year. And you get ready to do your open, you're in front of the camera, you're going live, and you hear this, and you look down, the band's playing the fight song, the team's firing out of the tunnel. It's a beautiful day. You smell the hot dogs. It's going to be a great game. And you hear this in your head All right, guys, let's have a good show. Wadi coming to you in five, four, three, two, and then the red light goes on and it's all mine for three hours. And that's better than working. That was pretty good. That was really good. I think that, that story might've been true too. That, that one is true. Yeah. Because you realize, I mean, I, I got, I got friends who dig ditches and, you know, I got friends who are doctors and, you know, it's funny. And when we have, we have a barbecue, we'll have people uh, out here, you know, neurologists and, and engineers are designing amazing buildings and, you know, somewhat famous people and and yet i swear to you at these barbecues all these guys come to me and go what's it what's it like what do you do and how do you do your homework and do you ever get caught and not have the next question and how do you know you know how do you identify numbers on a cap and you know they start asking me sports questions i'm like what are you talking about yesterday you cut a guy's skull open (laughs) with 15 of his family in the waiting room (laughs) you know if i make a mistake nobody cares you make a mistake it, you know, it has an effect, and, but they want to hear. And again, it's just one of those places, like one of the things, we, we do a fundraiser at my, my daughter's preschool. This is a pretty wealthy town. There's people with a lot of money. They can go anywhere and do anything. One of the favorite things uh, that when we auction off, I do a behind the scenes uh, at the Padres. And I have a friend who works there, a guy, uh, Tom Catlin, one of my good friends, just a prince of a, of a soul, just a wonderful dude. And he will allow people, they bid, they pay, donate money to the preschool. They get to go to a Padre game. He gets them four tickets, but he takes them to batting practice. He tells them to come early and he gives them a tour of the clubhouse, takes them in the press box and shows them, uh, in those days it was Dick Enberg, one of my neighbors who would call the games, bring him in the booth and maybe introduce him to Dick or see where he calls it. And they put on a headset and just 
So even though people are wealthy or powerful, they can't have access to some of these places. So if you can just pull that curtain back a little bit, everybody wants that. And I'll hear people still walk around town that did it three or four years ago. And they're like, my kids still have that picture over their, over their bunk beds and they still talk about it. That was so cool. Now when I watch a game, I, I know the announcer's got his headset on, he's got his notes and what he's looking at out of the press box. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of fun that you can sometimes take people where they normally wouldn't go, like a backstage pass at a rock concert, right? Yeah, I, I remember when the Dodgers, I don't know if they still do this, the Think Cure, and so they did all these different things, and it was, oh, hey, you get to meet Vince Scully, or hey, you get to meet this, and someone came to me, they're like, hey, you know, you, you get to be around Josh Sushan for the day, and I just started laughing. I was like, <laughs> right, oh, right, like right. who in their right mind wants to be around me? And they, like, talked me into it, and then I realized, okay, here's the thing. I don't matter, but I say hello to Vin every day. Right. And so I like, Hey, and when Jim Watson and Patrick O'Neill and Steve Lyons and their producer are hanging out, going over their, their rundown for the pregame show, I usually crash it. And I'm on the, I'm in the clubhouse and I'm down on the field. I got second pick for this interview. Sometimes I got third pick for one good interview, but I got this. And so I remember just telling people like, yeah, who am I? But these are all the different people you're going to get to meet throughout the course of the day. So you can meet Vin for like a 10th of the cost if you bid on me. That, that's ex- that you're exactly right. And remember that, you know, even though you and I know we're, we're just, you know, we're clowns, we're just average Joes, you know, we're the guy on the radio or the guy on the TV that they see. And so it's not us personally, it's what we represent, who we are and our access. And you're right. They would, they would come out and do things with us too. And, and you're looking at them and, you know, I, I, I don't wear that celebrity coat very well. I just, it's, because I know I'm not. I know, I know a lot of people could do my job. It's not, and a lot of people do my job. So it's not, it's not that, you know, it's a, it's, it's a skill. It's not, it's not um, you know, you're not born with this talent. Um, but, you know, you and I got to walk to the Dodger clubhouse whenever we wanted. And, and we didn't really need our credential because we knew the, the clubhouse guard. Everybody knew us. And I had friends who were Dodger fans for 30 years. They've never been in the clubhouse. And maybe they'd come to a doubleheader and it's a getaway day and the team's gone early and I'll say, hey, as we're walking out to the car, I'll sneak you down. I'll just open the door. You can't go in, but you can look in. And you grown men, you know, who have families and businesses and they've been all over the world and done important things. And they look in there like a little kid with their, their eyes like this. Just, oh, oh my gosh. That's where they, I go, it's a locker room. There's toilets and showers and, and a crafty <laughs> table. smells. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're smelling locker room in the history of sports. Hockey. We're oh. smelling locker in that room. Golfing. Oh my God. But yeah, right. it's, it, it's the access. Well, 39 sports is uh, a talent and a skill. And um, well, I, I didn't say I did them well. <laughs> <laughs> you know. This was fun. Thank you so much for your time. Stay safe. Stay healthy. You're welcome. Good to see you. That's Jim Watson, and this is Life Around the Seams. <laughs> <laughs>